0: This is a really big room. <laughs> and there are lots of you here today. This is, this is a, great, a great honor for me to really be out here. And I'm, I'm going to try to, at one, some point in my life, live up to that introduction. Uh, in, in the meantime, I'm going to go through just a bit of our work and what it is that we're trying to do in the South Bronx, a bit of our vision. Really, at this point, uh, it's more vision than anything else. Uh, you know, we're at the very early stages, uh, a very, a very much a baby. Uh, in terms of where we're trying to go and really creating a new vision of how society can be structured. But, you know, you laughed when uh, she said the future independent Green Republic of the South Bronx. I'm, I'm serious about that. And, and I, thank you. I believe deep down that each and every single one of you in this room and every single person that's watching this in all the places uh, where this is being fed, really deep down believes that You know, you really want to be from the future independent Green Republic of wherever you live. Because we're all tired of what's been happening in DC and we're tired of our local and our state governments, the way that they have been, uh, you know, really mistreating our communities. But what I'm here to do is really to talk about what's been happening in the South Bronx and to talk about our vision. But before I, I do that, I want to lay out a context for you to really talk about when we say another world is possible, you know, what is the world that we're really living in right now, and how can we really understand it in order to move to that, to that next point? First thing that I think we really need to, to understand, we, we come here as environmentalists, uh, we come here to really seek solutions and to lay out and understand our problems. And one of the things that we need to understand is, where does all this stuff come from? You know, these lights that are, that are burning in the room right now, When the light light switch goes on, where does the power come from? When you go to the bathroom, uh, if you take a break, or at some point at the end of this, you go to the bathroom, where does the water go after you flush it down the toilet? Where does any of of the, the materials that you rely on, where does that stuff come from? And all the things that you don't want, the waste, where does it go? Well, I come from one of those neighborhoods where a lot of this stuff goes. You know, I I come from the South Bronx. I grew up in the 80s in the era of crack. It was the time when uh, buildings were still burning. Um, You know, abandoned lots were everywhere. But people still had hope, and the area has certainly come around in many ways. But one of the things that we're currently living with is trash. We're living with trash, and so are many other communities around the country. And there are all kinds of other production issues, whether it's the power plants and where the power comes from, but all kinds of issues related to waste and effluence. And one of the things is, that we really need to understand is that we live in a wasteful society. Everyone knows that. But at the end of the day, where does the waste go? A wasteful society needs a dumping ground. You know, consider, that, consider that your mantra. There are communities that are treated as the, like the steam release valve on a pressure cooker. You know, without that steam release valve, a pressure cooker blows up. So places like the South Bronx, Richmond, uh, California, right here across the Bay, uh, Bayview-Hunters Point, right down in San Francisco, we're all those steam release valves that make it possible for the lights to be turned on, for people to drive here in their cars, for the water to be flushed down the drain. That's that's our purpose, and that's what many, many people actually see us as. But of course, real people live there. But the reason why our communities wind up suffering from this state of affairs is that disposal follows the path of least resistance. You know, it's, it's very simple and very plain, but it's also very true. If you do not have the means to fight back or you have less of the means to fight back, it's like water. Garbage is like water. It goes where there's least resistance. And there are certain things that, that are regularly understood and accepted, things that affect citing decisions. And I'm really going through this because I feel a, a compulsion and a need to really explain why uh, communities are fighting, why it is that we talk about environmental racism and environmental classism, and why it is that we fight for environmental justice, because this is the scenario. This is how a power plant or a garbage transfer station gets cited. You know about the land value. If the place is cheap, then someone's gonna build something on it. If uh, the geography works, something's gonna happen there. But if the community is able to say no, then it's not gonna happen. But how is the community able to say no? If someone says to you that we're going to build a power plant in your neighborhood, think about what you would do. Who would you call? Would you be calling a lawyer? Is someone in your family a lawyer? Do you were there people that you met at some point in your life? There are plenty of people that are out there, but we live in a, such a segregated society, racially and class, uh, race and class segregation, that those resources aren't spread across the board evenly. And race and class in this country have always been intertwined, so it's impossible to say it's either class or it's race. Since the very beginning, uh, slavery was, a, was an economic system. So the two have always been linked in this country, and it's impossible to say it's one or the other. But now I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, of a description about what's been happening uh, in the South Bronx, in New York City overall, and I know this is the same pattern in other parts of the country, right here in the Bay Area, uh, whether it's in Texas or Illinois or wherever people are watching wherever wa- are watching these feeds. The situation is the same. You know, in New York City, we've got power plants, we've got waste transfer stations. Uh, those are the places where garbage goes temporarily before it's sent to a, a landfill in some other uh, community. Those communities like ours are the same, that people look like me. They're low-income communities and communities of color, poor brown people, mostly. And in our neighborhoods, this is what we're living with. Uh, the picture that you're seeing up on the screen uh, is from the view of, uh, friend of the mother of a friend of mine, lives in a housing project in the South Bronx, and you look out the window, and you see at that red and white smokestack up there is the New York Organic Fertilizer Company. This is a company that processes sewage sludge. This neighborhood, where I live just a few blocks from there until recently, handles about half of New York City's sewage sludge. Half of Eight, eight million people. That's a lot of uh, stuff going down the drain. <laughs> stuff going down the toilet. And more, if you think of whatever else gets flushed down the toilet. Eight and a half million people, half of that comes right there to that building in the middle of the screen. And it's, in the summertime, there's a horrible odor that's spread all over the place. And it just, it's horrific, and it smells horrible. It makes you want to run away. It makes plenty of people run away, want to run away, but people can't afford to leave. So people are stuck living here uh, and stuck dealing with the smells. You know, and this is an environmental issue. It's an issue that people are living with. There are other issues uh, in the community, in the area as well, throughout the city. Power plants. Just a few years ago, uh, 10 power plants were rammed in low-income communities, all of them low-income communities, and overwhelmingly communities of color. Waste transfer stations, uh, you heard that there are about 13 and a thousand tons of construction and demolition debris. Well, New York produces about 50,000 tons of trash overall each and every single day. Pretty much all of that, moves through these temporary transfer stations before it gets sent to some other community. All of those are in four neighborhoods. Most of that, about half of that, are just in two neighborhoods, the one you saw earlier being one of them. So the pollution issue is major, and the consequences are immense. We're talking about health. This is a public health issue. Environment, environmental issues have always been a public health issue. When we talk about pollution, we're talking about asthma, we're talking about truck traffic, you're talking about one of the highest rates of asthma uh, in, in the country happening in the South Bronx with national uh, rates for asthma hospitalizations at six times the national average. You know, you walk in, I've walked into classrooms and, and talked to teachers who tell me they've, they've done their own surveys in public elementary schools. You ask a kid, uh, go into a classroom and ask kids how many of them have asthma, and you see 30%, at least 30% of the room, uh, cl- hands in the classroom go up. And it can range even up to 60%. So imagine if 60% of the room in this, uh, by the way, how many people in this room have asthma? All right, there, there, are, there are a small number of, you know, of hands that have gone up in the room. It's certainly not 60%, but all of you in the room knows what it feels like if you have an asthma attack and you find at some point that it's hard to breathe and it feels like you're sucking on a straw. If anyone doesn't have asthma, try sucking on a straw, uh, breathing through a straw, and you'll understand what having an asthma attack actually feels like. This has is, this is meant that more and more communities uh, have been becoming more aware of the health the health threats to themselves as a result of all of these polluting facilities and have become more aware of the problems and as a result have been able to fight you know, regardless of the resources. All it takes is people power. You get enough people in a room, you know, and enough skilled organizing, and you can stop anything from happening if you've got enough uh, awareness uh, ahead of time of a project. You know, you can make it happen, and there are more and more communities, and we all go under the name of the environmental justice movement, and we're fighting for our lives, fighting for our communities. But one of the things that has always been increasingly frustrating and it's the reason why we started Green Worker Cooperatives. Is this issue about jobs? What about the jobs? Someone waves a carrot in, a, in the front of a, a community and says, "Well, we're, we want to build this power plant, uh, you know, and we're going to bring jobs. Or we want to build this uh, warehouse distribution center. We're going to bring jobs. Or you name it, whatever the issue is, an oil refinery. We're going to bring jobs to the community. What, well, those jobs are desperately needed. I mean." The South Bronx is uh, one of the poorest areas in the country. The Bronx is the poorest urban county in the United States. You know, in uh, in our area, you know, unemployment rates are as high as 24 percent, which is ridiculous. You know, the, the national average is is a fraction of that. I mean, we're talking what five percent, five to to 10 percent has been the range in the past few years. And uh, you know this is a situ- situation that makes it so that people are desperate. They're desperate for work. So desperate people will will undoubtedly say, "Okay, fine." Some people will. There are plenty of other people that won't, but some people will. Community Service Society in New York did a study a few years ago that said almost half of Black men in New York City were out of work, jobless. You know, for Latino men, it's it was just you know bare, just slightly less than that, about forty-two percent. But these are really sad and and atrocious conditions that we're living with. And we know about the loss of manufacturing. This has been the traditional source of blue-collar jobs. Manufacturing has gone down incredibly uh, over the past few years. And all of you in California can be very proud to know that just a few years ago, you were number one in the loss of manufacturing jobs. Folks watching out in Texas, uh, you, you were number two. New York, we were number three. All right, and you know the, the list goes on, but uh, we're, we're talking about loss of, losses of tens of thousands of jobs in just one year. This was back in between 2000 and 2002. And what's been the response of, uh, of our federal government? You know, what, what's been the response? You can see it up on that cartoon. It's a glorification of Walmart yeah, great, we've been, we've been losing all these manufacturing jobs. They've gone overseas or other parts of the country, mostly overseas. But we have these great jobs at McDonald's these great jobs at Walmart. A few years ago, uh, the Bush administration actually tried to change the classification uh, for work. I don't know if anyone was following this, but they actually tried to change the classification for manufacturing to try to include uh, companies like McDonald's so that, because you know, flipping burgers is can be considered a manufacturing job. <laughs> now we know there's some funky ideology happening in, in the White House, but when I heard about that one, I was, you know, this this is was, this was really you know one of those signals. <laughs> there's something wrong happening here. <laughs> you know, for for all of us in, in places like the South Bronx and around the country, we say, you know, we do want jobs. Undoubtedly we need jobs. But we don't want jobs that kill us in the process. I mean, you want a job that gives you, that gives you health insurance, not, so that, not to protect you from the job itself, but to protect you from walking outside and getting hit by a car. And on top of that, when we hear companies say, you know, they have a job for us, uh, they have a job for us in a power plant, we say, get real, man. I mean, how many people work in a power plant? Six? <laughs> Four of them are engineers? You know, public school system sucks. There aren't any, uh, any engineers coming out of uh, you know, PS48 uh, in Hunts Point, at least not yet. You know, it's something that we'd like to see, but the public school system is one that has been getting slashed and burned left and right. You know, there's much more of an investment in sending people to war than there is an investment in public education. <laughs> So for the time being, you know, when someone says that they've got, they've got promises of jobs, then we need to make sure that these are actually jobs that fit the skills that are actually existing in the community, uh, not having to depend 10 years from now on creating job programs so that one day, in the hopes that one day, those jobs will actually trickle down and come to us. You know, and then there are issues about just, this is all about access to jobs. And if, you know, whether it's the skill level or whether it's racial exclusion in, in, uh, in labor unions, though we certainly support labor unions, but there's been undoubtedly a long history of racism that has excluded many people from, from jobs in the, in the, uh, in the unions. Uh, but all of these things really relate to access to the job itself. And creating that access is something that we really live for. Green Worker Cooperatives uh, lives for, it's something, That is really our focus, to really create these kinds of jobs. And our focus is really an alternative. To say, we don't want jobs that kill people in the process. Well, what is the alternative? How can we create these jobs? Well, we follow that same precautionary principle. We say an option is zero waste. You know, there's no need to uh, to continue to throw everything out and, and just create uh, a handful of jobs at a landfill in some far off distant land. Let's keep the stuff right here. There are plenty of jobs just sitting in that garbage can that get, wind up getting thrown into a dumpster and sent out somewhere else. You know, for every job you can create 25 or 250 doing anything from recycle, recycling to reuse to remanufacturing. And the opportunities are there, whether it's reduce, and the benefits are there. You're reducing waste, you're creating jobs, you're preserving any number of natural resources, and you're minimizing all of the pollution and, and all of the waste that went into pulling the raw materials out and cutting down the trees and strip mining the, uh, the mountains to get those materials in the first place. So there's plenty of opportunity there, but it's something that's been long ignored. But our focus at Green Worker Cooperatives, and we're a brand new organization, uh, is something that just popped up out of the air about two years ago when I got tired of, of uh, being const- constantly being the, the naysayer and saying no. You know, we're gonna we need to stop this this plant from, from coming in, we need to stop the city from doing this, doing this or doing that. All of us, really, all of us community organizations saying we need we we don't want any more of these. We as long as we've got a vacant piece of property, someone is going to want to build, whether it's a power plant or a waste facility, something there. So the option of creating jobs, creating something to fill that vacant piece of land whether it's a park or whether it's, a, whether it's a, a green manufacturing plant, is something that we've long been desiring to do. So that's really our focus, to create green-collar jobs. And that's what we call them, wearing my green collar. <laughs> to create, To create those green-collar jobs that don't kill people in the process. I mean, we love our communities. We love clean air. We'd one day like to see some green trees. Uh, We don't have enough of that. But we'll hopefully get there, we will get there. But we need to, you know, do these things and create this kind of work and and make it be homegrown because no one else is coming to the South Bronx. There aren't any uh, anti-capitalist CEOs with a green conscience coming to the South Bronx and trying to give workers a piece of the action. So we said, you know, forget that, we'll do it ourselves and just make it happen. So our focus uh, and it was, in the, it was uh, you heard a little earlier, uh, our focus, what we're trying to do right now is to start our very first worker cooperative, a worker-owned business that would be engaged in reuse. In a sense, uh, you think of it as a, home, a worker-owned Home Depot for used stuff. You know, I, I love being, you know, just being able to explain it that way. And there are plenty of them around the country and they're great benefits to salvaging building materials. Anybody who's ever renovated renovated a kitchen or done any kind of construction work knows that there's an incredible amount of waste and there's an incredible amount of expense. You've got to pay to throw all that stuff out. You know, there used to be a time, and in a few places and corners, there still all still are people that will come around with a with a little truck and take your metal. But that's about it. Uh, not a whole lot more goes on other than it's other than if it's a high-end antique stuff. Uh, but there are plenty, there's plenty of opportunity there, and there's plenty of money to be saved, whether it's on the disposal end, you can actually get money for what you're throwing out, or whether it's on the receiving end, you know, whether if you're, you're renovating your own place, you know, if you're like me, you, you, you're trying to save some money, and you're trying to, you know, make a dollar out of 15 cents and make some things stretch. Constr- you know, building materials are going up, uh, cost, is, cost of building materials are going up tremendously. You know, so you've got to save money and, and, you know, make ends meet somehow. So this is a great opportunity to do that. But on top of that, there are the, envir- the other environmental benefits. Certainly being able to reduce the amount of waste that's being generated and avoiding the need to strip mine a, a mountain in order to make a brass doorknob or cut down a forest in order to, to get some hollow core doors or a solid core door. when there's one sitting on the curb, you know, in front of your house or down the block every- each and every single day or on a Friday, or whenever they pick up the trash. So there's plenty of opportunity that's there. And on top of that, you're creating jobs. Now, there are a number of different reuse operations happening around the country. Minneapolis in Minnesota has the reuse center that was started by the Green Institute. And some people know about uh, the Green Institute in, or maybe you're just from Minneapolis and you want to represent. But Minneapolis has one. Portland, Oregon has the, uh, the uh, rebuilding center. Recycle North operates in Burlington, Vermont. And certainly for the Bay Area folks, you know about urban North. So this is what we're really trying to to recreate right in the South Bronx and uh, create an opportunity to reduce a lot of that construction and demolition debris that already moves through our neighborhoods. It just winds up getting crunched, dumped, into a and dropped into a big, empty lot with a corrugated fence around it where things crush it and then the dust goes up in the air and triggers asthma attacks for people who live around it, then it gets thrown into a long-haul tractor-trailer and sent out to Ohio or Virginia and dumped into a hole in the ground where it'll sit for who knows how long until maybe at some point someone gets the good sense to dig it right back up again. We figure, you know, we, need, we can avoid all that, you know, and save somebody maybe $50 on a cabinet in the process. So there's, there's plenty of opportunity, and if anybody here is an architect or a builder and you're, you're doing your own project, think about actually reusing the stuff. You know, there's plenty of opportunity there. What you're looking at here is actually a, a, a photo of a, an asphalt plant in Vancouver, in Canada. All right, there's some Canadians here in the, in the room. So you know, there are great things happening in Canada. One of them is right here in Vancouver. This was an asphalt plant. You know, who thinks of an asphalt plant as sexy, but this is a pretty nice-looking building. of the thing uh, is actually from salvage building materials. A lot of it from the building that used to be there uh, on the same site previously. So there's plenty of opportunity there. But something that we need to think about as we go through our day going to the different sessions and uh, as we're talking amongst ourselves and with our friends or we're talking about whatever it means to be green is asking ourselves when we talk about uh, whether it's reuse or just doing anything green, is it enough? Is it enough to just be green? Is it enough to say, you know, we're, we're have, we, have, we do fair trade, we do or, well, fair trade is even a step beyond green, but is it enough to say, you know, we're, we're reducing the waste stream or we're driving the biodiesel car or we're doing this or we're doing that uh, without really looking at the economics? How, I mean, we're talking about an environmental and economic system that is really destroying the world and it's destroying communities and it's destroying uh, people's health. You know, we need to understand of economics as an ecosystem in and of itself. You know, it's, it's completely human made, it's what drives, uh, it's, it is what guides our, uh, how we eat, how we sleep, how we get food on our table. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and of that there is no, there's certainly no doubt. Well, you hear it all the time. Uh, you, hear, you see the reality each and every single day. So when we talk about what it means to be green and our green projects, we need to recognize that if we are truly going to be able to transition to a, a pollutionless world and really move to zero waste, we need to be cognizant of the fact that there are, community, there are not only communities that are bearing the brunt disproportionately, but there is an economic system that requires that there are communities that bear the brunt that requires that there are people who will make less than someone else, that there is always going to be this difference in class, or this difference in social standing, this difference in access to resources that makes all of this possible. I mean, there is no excuse in the future. We can be as green as we want, but is it really just for, uh, for wealthy, white, middle-class residents of Marin to, uh, to live with eco-friendly cars, eat eco-friendly food, drink fair trade coffee, while poor black and brown people in Richmond are suffering next to an oil refinery, or poor black and brown people are suffering in Bayview-Hunters Point with a power plant. We need to really recognize that there is a lot more that needs to be done. And there is a lot more that needs to happen in our workplaces. You know, one of the things that we are are very, we very much love is the idea of the worker cooperative. And this is not uh, something, merely a throwback of the 70s, but this is something that is very real and very alive right now. We believe in the opportunity to really recreate our economic system, to really create an alternative to the capitalism that we know and that we live with each and every single day. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what a worker cooperative is, it's, it's the, the truest sense of the idea of workers owning the means of production. Or service. You know, production or service, either one. But really, workers owning their own workplace, and really deciding true, a true democracy, where workers are able to, are empowered to really decide their own fates. Because we are the ones who actually, we all work somewhere, and you want to have a say in your own workplace. It's where democracy can actually happen. But there are many benefits to a worker cooperative. It retains wealth in a community. You don't have someone making 100 times or 1,000 times what the lowest paid worker makes who winds up living maybe 10 states away or even in another country. It empowers workers because workers have the opportunity to have a voice in their own lives. It enables accountability. Because it's not enough to say, you know, we don't want a smokestack in the neighborhood. True accountability is, if there's going to be a smokestack, then the smokestack needs to be pointed into the boardroom. (laughs) Because it's in the boardroom where those decisions happen. And if it's not happening there, if the workers are from there, then no worker wants to gas their own neighborhood, because people in the supermarket will be pissed off at you if they see you. (laughs) Worker cooperatives do not leave town, and they avoid layoffs. And it teaches democracy. Where do we actually practice democracy in this so-called democracy? You know, it's not something that merely happens four times a year. There are plenty of worker co-ops, and I'm wrapping up here. There are plenty of worker co-ops in the United States. These are just a few that I felt the, the need to, to put up here. Plenty of you in the Bay Area know at least 30 of them. Rainbow, Aris Mendy, and Good Vibrations. You know, other parts of the country, people are laughing. I know they're talking about Good Vibrations. <laughs> There are others around the country. Burley makes bicycles. Northland Poster Collective. Some of the drawings that you saw came from Northland Poster Collective uh, on the slides earlier. Cooperative Home Care Associates is in my neck of the woods in the South Bronx. 800, 850 workers, uh, all, all of them uh, Dominican, Caribbean, all other Caribbean, African American, uh, Latina, and African American women, at uh, home health care aides. Who have raised the standard for work, uh, work practices in the home healthcare field, and they're in the South Bronx. Uh, anyone who wants a resource on worker cooperatives, I'm, the, I'm on the national board of the Federation, National Federation of U.S. Uh, the Federa- U.S. Federation. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are lots of people in the room. U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. It's a national federation. Check out our website, usworker.coop. Plenty of resources there if you want to learn more about how to start your own worker cooperative. And uh, before I go, you know, our information is right there up on the screen. You can email me, omar, at greenworker.coop. In a few months, our website will be going live. Same address, www.greenworker.coop. .coop is actually a co-op extension, just for co-ops. So the movement for worker cooperatives is growing. It's something that we intend to build and spread all over the country because we do believe that we need an alternative to our economic system and we need an alternative to envirom- our current environmental system. Those of you that are, that are here, uh, here in the audience, and you can go out and tell your friends, there are some pamphlets or booklets that I put together Uh, just for this. uh, It's called Green Development for Environmental Justice and Healthy Communities. They're going to be made available over at the Bioneers booth tent. And if any of you would like to to help out in the effort to promote green worker cooperatives and push, uh, support the movement for worker-owned businesses and environmentally friendly green collar jobs, you can make a donation when you get the booklet. You know, $3, $1, whatever you want, $20, $100, you can write a check. Green worker. you know, we'll take it. But this is the work that we're aiming to do. We believe deep down uh, in our hearts, to our core, that another world is undoubtedly possible and we are going to be the ones that are going to make it happen.